Hi, I'm Yana Firestone. I've loved having you on my podcasting journey so far. I hope you're enjoying season four and that you've gained something from the stories I've been bringing to you. Now, I've made something just for you. Living through these tumultuous times, we've all had a lot to contend with. We've had to pivot and adapt like never before. But what if we can't? What's stopping us from taking those leaps of faith? In my new book, Embracing Change, I unpack some of the psychological barriers to change using anecdotes from my own personal life and professional experience as a therapist, as well as sharing some of the heartfelt and painful experiences of my well-known guests on the Curious Life podcast. We all have a story and we all have challenges to overcome. Embracing change is about finding the ways that we can adjust, transition and adapt as smoothly as possible. Embracing Change is available at all good bookstores at Kmart, Big W or online via Booktopia. If you prefer to listen to your books, you can hear me read it to you via audiobook available through Audible. I would love to hear your thoughts, so please let me know what you think on socials at The Curious Life Podcast. And don't forget, as always, to leave a rating or review of the podcast. In this episode of The Curious Life, Yana catches up with investigative journalist Jess Hill from See What You Made Me Do, who has a new three-part series on SBS Demand, Asking For It, which explores the issue of consent in Australia, the urgent need for consent education, and why it's become the issue of our time. This episode is not to be missed, with Jess and Yana discussing what consent is and how to educate the next generation about what porn is and why it's not real life. They talk the damage it's doing to young impressionable minds, parents' responsibilities and how best to broach the subject and when. Law reforms and dealing with trauma. Sounds pretty heavy, right? Well, there is that. But this episode is not only informative, it'll have you riveted and you'll pick up a few things you didn't know you didn't know too. You'll meet the very easy to listen to Jess Hill next. Well, Jess Hill, it is such an honor, truly, to be speaking with you today. Your work is brilliant. I've been following for as long as you've been putting stuff out. I've been watching, I've been reading. It's such important work. So thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Yana. We're here today to talk about Asking For It, which is your new series on SBS. And we were just starting to kind of launch into it off air, but there's just so much there. There's so much I would love to get into with you. But before we kind of leap into the content of this series, how did you actually get into this line of journalism? Because it's pretty heavy hitting stuff. Well, it was quite accidental as a lot of these things tend to be. And I was, I was essentially working at the ABC, doing investigative radio reporting on all sorts of different topics from asylum seekers to energy bills. Um, <laughs> and I got asked to write a long feature article on family violence by the editor of The Monthly. And that's a, a magazine based in Melbourne. And Melbourne or oh, Victoria generally had sort of shot ahead of the rest of the country in terms of its awareness of family violence because of the murder of Luke Batty. So this is around the end of 2014 that I got asked to do this and and Luke was murdered in February of 2014. And Rosie Batty had, from the day of her son's murder by his father, had fronted the media in the street and had just delivered this reflection that was so 
at once gutting, screw, and forgiving. He basically said, I hope this shows everyone family violence can happen to anyone, no matter how nice your house is, no matter how nice a street you live on. And she also said, I know that Greg loved his son, you know, which was just sort of, I mean, like this was one of the most horrifying public murders we'd seen in recent history. But her kind of, it wasn't forgiveness. It was her her capacity to show love in that instance for someone who arguably did not deserve it was like an invitation to people that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, we want to invite you into this conversation and then she just kept on fronting up to the media day after day after day and she just didn't stop for years and then became Australian of the Year. So my reporting was very much brought about by Rosie Batty's advocacy essentially and what she did in the state of Victoria which then echoed out across the country. I was asked to write this article like basically to answer the question or try to, what is family violence? Why does it still happen? What does it feel like? What does it look like? And I guess for me, when I started, I was like, well, four and a half thousand words, like those features were not common back then at all, unless it was a homicide and you're writing about that. Nothing long about family violence was really being published. And I was like, well, what, some guy goes home on a Friday night drunk, belts his wife, wife like I'm yeah. sort of just self but that was like the basic line of thought yeah. I had and it wasn't until I was like that I understood thanks to particularly the phone counsellors at Safe Steps the family violence helpline in um, Victoria that this is about power mm-hmm. and also understood that I had been asking a lot of questions about victims' behaviour, but not one single question about the perpetrator, like mm. in the looking into this. <laughs> and I suddenly realised not only do I totally have the emphasis wrong, I'm thinking about violence and violence only, but I also, I am like so many other members of the community who can only see the victim's behaviour in their eyesight and I didn't visualise the perpetrator. So I, I got basically obsessed and every time my producer at at the ABC who I was also still reporting for tried to get me to move on to a different topic someone would call me and say like well have you thought about doing this as well like have you thought about looking into family court and this is what's just happened to me or have you thought looking at perpetrators and, and looking at like why do men do this and every time I did I was like oh my god there's like this is a Mary Poppins bag of stories like it just never ends and yeah and then at the beginning of 2016 I was asked to write a book about it and and I have to say reluctantly said yes mm. reluctant vicarious trauma of reporting on family court particularly was so heavy but I just knew that this is you know no one's written a book for the general audience about the phenomenon of family violence and coercive control as it turned out and you're being asked to so you, you should do it properly I mean that's a huge undertaking enormous takes six months so when I <laughs> an $8,000 advance, I was like, oh, shit, you know, it's going to be tight, but Mm. six months, whatever, we'll just be poor for a while. And it took three and a half years. Wow. (laughs) It was real like that. Oh, Oh, wow. Well, hopefully the royalties came flooding in because, (laughs) my God. We're very lucky that, and, you know, when it won the Stella Prize in 2020, that was a lifesaver for us. We're like, oh, we can actually buy a car that works, you know. (laughs) authors who win a literary prize but yeah that work just sort of continued but it morphed a bit for me into advocacy and education which was a awkward position for a journalist to be put in initially but 
I think once you see up close the reality of gendered violence, I think, and I've seen this amongst many other journalists who've gone into this field, you can't be a bystander. And we see that with like, you know, Jane Gilmore famously affixed it. She started doing like consent education, literally teaching consent classes to kids. Nina Fennell ran the Let Her Speak campaign. Like so many journalists who go into this area also like cross that line into advocacy. It's like the need is so gigantic. Yeah. It's, it's hard to just stay at a distance. Well, how do you keep, how do you safeguard your own mental health when, because, you know, I know the impact of vicarious trauma having worked in child protection and at the coroner's court and with victims of crime. And I know that the job doesn't end when you get home. You know, you're living with these stories still decades later, literally almost two decades after I worked in child protection those stories are still so close to the surface for me. How do you manage all of that? Because you are drowning in those stories. Yeah. Um, I say that for most of the last however many years, close to a decade, working in this area, I did not manage it very well. I felt an enormous responsibility to, like, might sound hubristic, but like save people. I felt especially in issues that, you know, relate to children, as you're saying, and things where there's like children at risk at the moment that you're writing about it. Well, not just at risk, like in physical danger. So, yeah, so I took that responsibility on for years, be kept awake at night. Just the, yeah, the heaviness of that in the day-to-day life was pretty extreme. I would say that I really only got a sense of how to care for myself truly at the end of last year. And that's because, and, you know, not not to bring in something even heavier, but I had a recurrence of a brain tumour that had first appeared in 2012 when I was living in the Middle East and reporting there. And I had a seizure in October in the middle of the night. And then they found, actually, you've had, even though I'd been going for six monthly checks, you've had a tumour in your head for three years. Wow. (laughs) And I'd noticed over the last three years like one of the symptoms of having a tumor in the spot i had it was depression overwhelm loss of short-term memory a whole bunch of other things but depression and overwhelm were things that i'd really put down to just having the vicarious trauma working too hard because not only during that time was i doing things like making see what you made me do the series with sbs and with northern pictures but pretty much on a weekly basis doing education around the country with everyone from magistrates services to government just like a lot just mm. for two or three years and always and even at you know judicial education always there'd be someone at the end saying after I just laid out coercive control I've just realized that I have either experienced coercive control in a past relationship I grew up with it as a kid or I've just realized that I am in a coercive control relationship right now yeah and I have the fear So those disclosures would always happen. So there'd be, you know, multiple in-person disclosures every week. There'd be tens and tens of emails that I could never, you know, respond to in adequate enough detail. Mm -hmm. Um, So feeling a bit depressed and sort of heavy didn't seem so adequate. (laughs) But yeah, when I had to undergo brain surgery and then when it was sort of like, oh, things have got a bit more serious since last time and need to undergo radiation and chemo suddenly I was like okay man you're 40 you've got a five-year-old like it's actually bordering on selfish for you to keep 
like just diving into the work so completely that you get swallowed up whole and you need to keep boundaries around yourself and know you're not going to be able to reply to everybody and you're going to have to you know change the way that you do this work if you want to stay in proximity to it and actually think about like what am I eating am I exercising just mm. like not your jar because even the brain's not doing so well right now so um so, <laughs> so that was yeah unfortunately yeah like a serious, serious bout of illness to wake me up. It's terrible that we know all this stuff on the surface. If somebody said to you, I'm so stressed and overwhelmed, you'd be saying, are you looking after yourself? Are you taking time out? Blah, blah, blah. But we never apply it to ourselves. And it so often takes a big health scare to Mm. actually throw it all into perspective. But you're talking about these disclosures and the trenches that you were in in this work for someone in my position as a therapist right that's the kind of work that I'm trained to do and Mm. you found yourself doing all of that work and probably not getting supervision and probably not getting the professional support that someone who was putting their hand up to be a therapist to those people would be getting so I mean the stress and the vicarious trauma there is enormous so I'm so glad that you've now been able to take a breath and not for the reasons that you have to but now you can kind of realign things because the work just keeps going doesn't it I mean unfortunately it's endless and not to mention the fact that my partner is a psychotherapist is like so what happened to you today (laughs) like well I had like Three massive, like massively traumatized clients come in and relive their childhood sexual abuse, or like you know, yeah. that's unwinding for the day. Yes, um, but also together understanding each other's work and knowing the consequences of it, but for good and bad. And intellectually, you know, David has been absolutely central to my work and has been a co-writer for See What You Made Me Do. Has always been my sounding board, and there's a lot of things that I have changed my perspective on or altered it, particularly to do with how we talk about men, abuse in such a way that does not let perpetrators or offenders off the hook and encourages accountability, but also offers an invitation. And I think that were I not to have had, you know, a very intuitive and educated male voice in my ear at home, I could easily have just sat in a very angry place, thought that the best way for me to represent victim survivors and and this issue is to yell Mm. at men, which might feel cathartic. No doubt that, like, I think I took three and a half years to write the book because actually the first year I just felt angry mm-hmm. and I had to write out the anger about all this stuff and, and being in close contact with people whose lives were being ruined by these fixated mm-hmm. guys. But, yeah, after a while it's like that's not, like, you can't actually, women can't do this on their own. We have to have men come on board and we have to have men who don't have perfect histories, particularly in the area of sexual violence there can be a bit of a tilt towards purity politics where it's like, well, this guy has done this in his past or he said this or whatever. It's like, okay, but what is his behaviour now? Mm -hmm. Are there signs that he's actually reckoned with that and changed? Because if you only want to take the totally pure guys, well, you might need to wipe the entire, like, heterosexual male species. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's going to be stuff in their grey area I said, in fact, there's some gray area for women as well that we don't talk about, you know, so it's like, let's just stop trying to get 
people to be perfect, if people are still being problematic and uh, problematic or violent and not reckoning with that and using this politics as a cover, well, that's heinous. But if they have reckoned with their past and they're actually contributing to a discourse that's helping other people move on from their pasts and be better, well, what? I don't understand why we, we would reject those people. That's like an own goal to me. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And there's there's a bit of that in the new series too. So many things just popped into my mind as you were speaking. I was like, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, but what was really interesting was giving a voice to some of those 1% perpetrators actually giving interviews from jail, talking about what it actually feels like to rape somebody um, uh-huh. and that that power complex that seems to be so deeply rooted in all of that. That was incredible because we don't often hear, We, I mean, as you're saying, there's a whole spectrum of people that have this grey area and that, you know, nobody's perfect and that's how we learn, but we're not really hearing from those people that are sitting in jail for probably countless offences. It's probably not the one time. What was that like hearing from them? Yeah, pretty chilling, especially because, I mean, I've spoken to quite a few people who've used violence and control in relationships, and that's a really different scene to sexual violence. And I think that the majority of those offenders that we hear from, the sexual violence they're using, they're not someone who just like, yeah, as you said, like raped someone they're out on a date with or they're like those, for want of a better word, they're kind of the monster that everyone's afraid of, right, coming in back window or planning a gang rape at a party. And so hearing them talk about, I guess, that that sadistic impulse that was there for them but and also the absolute meaninglessness of it it like you know to be honest a number of them sounded sociopathic in that way that you know it's like there's just nothing there's no meaning attached to this except for power and control and what i think that doesn't capture is say for example the the story that we see in episode 1 of Gemma who is sexually assaulted by a close friend actually was one of her best friends at the time mm-hmm. at her house after they've you know they've all gotten drunk as 15 year olds and just had a bit of a like house party while her parents are away and and she's fallen asleep and he's come in the room and basically sexually assaulted her while she's unconscious when she wakes up to being assaulted. But not just that. He then goes and ruins her reputation to their mutual friends, calling her a slut and like that she was so all over him and didn't care who heard. And, you know, that that type of, of offender is the one that we don't hear from. Like, okay, so you made this impulsive possibly unless it was planned who knows again i'm just guessing choice to sexually assault your friend someone you were close to i want to know like did you know that you were throwing the friendship away in that moment why didn't that matter to you what were you getting out of it like just sex like what was in it for you and then why did you go and ruin her reputation to others was that literally just to cover your ass Mm. did you believe some of what you said you know they're the questions that really burn inside me like and even after it's not that I'm not familiar with people who use sexual violence against you know people that they say they love but I kind of in a way I can almost understand that you're in a sexual relationship with someone already all these things come up around maybe ownership and entitlement stuff but 
to do it to a friend where they were, and like you're 15. Yeah. And while it's fascinating to hear from those guys in jail, as you say, they're part of a 1% club that actually up in conviction and they're representative of the vast majority of sexual offending. They are the pointy end. But still, I mean, that sadistic impulse is really important to hear and to say that does exist. Like that horrible thing that you think might be in the minds of some men who do this, like listen to these guys. It, it really is. As you say, those are the guys that as women we're imagining are hiding behind the trees when we're walking home at night. But what was frightening was hearing that the highest rate of offending occurs between the age of 15 and 19, so young guys, which is where that friend of Gemma fell into. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. I was watching it with my partner and just looking at him like, Jesus, like we've got three young boys. My eldest is nearly seven. It's not that far away that he's going to be drinking at a party. And how does he go from a beautiful, gorgeous young kid to somebody who looks at his drunk friend and thinks that's what I'll have. I'm going there. Like, where is that coming from? Probably he won't. But, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know many that would, it's, a, it's a nightmarish situation to do that to their friend. But the boys who do, you know, and and if we, we look at the sorts of feedback that we're getting from some of the um, high school guys um, in episode two and three, there's all sorts of different things going on. You've got desire, quite overwhelming desire and, and sort of hormonal desire. You've got entitlement. Mm. The feeling that like I should just be able to take what I need and pressure that mm. if I don't show myself to be like sexually voracious and that I'm like just picking up chicks whenever I want or losing my virginity at a certain time, yeah. then I'll be seen as like, you know, a kind of beta male and someone who's, this is the subterranean stuff. I'm not saying this is in men, young men's heads, but someone who is vulnerable to the violence of other men, not alpha, not someone who's in control, not someone who's going to be popular and successful. It's like, you're going to be the one that's like struggling away, you know, not being able to get the girl. What's come up over the last few years in parallel to things like the Me Too movement has been a much bigger, a popular manosphere like basically, I mean, it is guys like Andrew Tate, but it's also other guys that we don't know the names of who have huge followings, but and some women who really play off this internalized misogyny sort of shtick. And they're often appealing to young guys through the, you know, the front door is sort of mental health. You want to get your shit together. You want to get your life together. You want to be like, you want to be successful. And then through once they're through that door, the sorts of content that can be coming through to these guys is like, oh, and by the way, like if you want to be successful, you need to show these women who's boss, all this stuff around like feminism and gender fluidity. It's all like totally opposite to nature nature says men need to be in control men need to be men you know you need to spread your seed to like you know like continue the population or whatever it's a you know evolutionary impulse there's a lot of this really old school like evolutionary masculinity which some people would refer to as a, as a toxic type of masculinity i think that term is now probably way overused but these are the sort of tropes that we're trying to show boys and men don't actually work for them because what they're asking boys to be is like just strong, unemotional, totally logical, in charge. And it means that like they're being basically told that if you don't excise your tenderness and your sensitivity and the part 
of yourself that would never dream of assaulting your friend, then you're not going to be successful. Other side, and this has been because there's been a lot of anger around the Me Too movement, and and rightly so, as women largely came to terms with sexual violence and their own histories of that, we've been kind of telling boys and men to like shut up and listen, Mm. which they need to do, to the extent that it's sort of like we don't really want to hear from you. Like we don't want to hear your feeling about this. And we don't want to hear from you about sexual interactions that you've had that you found uncomfortable because, like, it's not about you. It's about women. Stop trying to overtake, you know, this experience. And so I, I think that has got to end now and we've got to do it sensitively in a way that, yeah, that makes sure that we have still foreground the issue of gendered violence but that we just sit and listen to what, well, where are guys at? Because if we don't, if we don't open the door to that, all these people over in the manosphere, as it's called, are like welcoming them with open arms. Yeah. We're like, oh, why are so many young guys attracted to figures like Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson? It's like, because we're telling them to fuck off, essentially. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> they're fucking off. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that was another thing, you know, it was alarming to see how quickly when you did that experiment with TikTok and liking, you know, one or two or three videos, just how quickly. Pausing on them. Yeah, just pausing. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. And then all of a sudden you are deeply in the manosphere and just being flooded with all of that. I mean, that's the thing. How does a young developing mind work out where the line is and figure out that, okay, this is not, you know, it's like working in child protection or working where you work, your perspective becomes skewed because that's the population that you're working within. So you just feel like, all men are rapists and abusers and all of that because that's all you're seeing. So how do these kids look at all of this content and discern, oh, no, this is this is just the algorithm that's shoving this terrible stuff. That's not real. That's not how we really think. That, yeah, if you're constantly surrounded by that type of material, lots of young guys would watch someone like Andrew Tate and just think he's a clown. Yeah be grossed out by him, frankly. But then there's other, I think, you know, and then people in the middle who just sort of like their sensibilities would just be moving slightly without them even noticing where they fans, but they'd just be like some of the things would be resonating with them and they'd be starting to wonder like, you know, should I be a bit more like that or should I, you know, Mm. it's like putting these chinks of doubt in their head. And then, yeah, and then you've got the total acolytes who are like signing up for his like Hustlers University and all this Mm. sort of thing and so many other people in this sphere who are basically it's all anti-pc right it's all anti-sense and then anti-feminism gets like swept up in that but it's like oh all this stuff about racism and misogyny like basically the the whole message is aren't you bored aren't you bored of being told what to do like we're not going to tell you what to do we're going to show you how to be a man and if you're sort of swimming around in that a lot and you don't have someone giving you any kind of counter education or someone that you really respect telling you why these people are really harmful and are not gonna give you what you need then sure it's like it can be really seductive well to counter that you know there are some brilliant people that we saw in the series who are going into schools and talking to young guys on their level talking about the expectations 
of men on or young boys when it comes to sex and what they're watching in their porn selections and you know having those real and honest conversations from like a pretty cool guy who he's not talking down to them he in fact that was what one of the boys mentioned is that everyone had been coming to the school and talking about consent had sort of been talking down to them and then he's coming in and saying what are you guys watching on what's that porn and also he's a guy who's got tats he's the former muay thai fighter he trains fight he's like he's the kind of muscle guy that if if he were of a different persuasion you'd see him on tiktok you know um spreading (laughs) so he looks like guys but he talks completely differently and he talks to them about not just like this is the reality for women and girls and this is the stuff around, you know, boys' entitlement to those women and girls. But he's like, what kind of pressure are you guys feeling from what you're watching on porn? How are you feeling about sex? What are the expectations that you have? And then he's talking about what's happening to women and girls in amongst that. Mm. But so like there's an opportunity for them to talk about the stuff that they feel really uncomfortable about where they're not just being framed as potential predators yeah and the problem these are the problems and if and if don't sort of get educated on how those problems emerge then you could end up being that problem but what are the problems you're facing like you know and the idea he's really advocating this idea that like patriarchy or whatever term you want to use you know harms girls and boys Mm. not just men's power over women it's also some men's power over other men and what that makes boys and men feel like they have to be like how they feel like they have to change their personalities in order to fit into it fit this mold which will vouchsafe them from being harmed basically or from being rejected or isolated so I found that to be For me, these next two, episode two and three, are like they really take us into that world of where we need to go to and how we can keep with boys and men about this. Because as I said, like we can't do this without them. So we need to figure out a way to do this with them whilst not shirking away from the truth and the reality of the situation and accountability. Next on The Curious Life, Jess Hill and Yana go there porn no pun intended but have we dropped the ball on the type of imagery that is now available to people as young as eight years old and what is it doing to their young minds this episode of the curious life podcast is brought to you by the sneaky treat company melbourne decadent sweet treats delivered to your door let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com. You know you want to. Those traditional kind of birds and the bees conversations are completely different these days and as parents we've got a massive responsibility to be talking about consent in a really honest way and in I love the concept of enthusiastic consent that can be retracted it's not just about getting a big yes in the beginning and then going for it it's yeah. at any and point it's something that's like a bit well you know the problem is that young people now it's common to use things like choking in sex and like in an initial sexual encounter 
which yeah. growing up in the 90s and early 2000s would have been so shocking. Yeah. Like being like, what the hell? Like yeah. get out of there straight away. This person's yeah. weird. That was BDSM not regular sex and now that's kind of it's almost it's mainstream that kind of you know that those sorts of sexual add-ons um and the point like you know if you're going to be doing that like you need to talk to each other you know Mm -hmm. and if you're with legitimately seems enthusiastic about that then yes try it out i mean there's definitely people who feel like that you know the whole breath play thing and choking there's actually no way to do that safely at all expert in episode two who talks about that because basically mm-hmm. have unconsciousness after six seconds and you can you know you're having mass harm to brain cells yeah. every second oxygen is cut off to the brain but you know people are going to do what they do i mean i would strongly advise against choking personally but if that for whatever reason is your jam and it's the other person's jam just make sure you negotiate it Mm. like is so central to bdsm where it's like there needs to be codes there needs to be an understanding of what the limits are you know like unfortunately we're hearing a lot of stories of young guys launching into these sexual practices with someone where it hasn't been negotiated where they're doing things like anal on the first date and they're not the time that you actually require to like prepare that or even asking yeah you know like yeah. it's and so of course there are young women you know walking away from those interactions feeling like they've been assaulted yeah um, or having massive regrets and just feeling or feeling like they don't even know whether it's assault, but they feel really bad yeah, and really ashamed. So I feel like, I mean, we've just, I think as feminists, we've gotten really confused about porn because we're, on the one hand, we really wanted to advocate for and stand up for sex workers mm-hmm. and never wanted to sort of like do or say something that would further marginalise them. And there was also this pressure to be sort of sex positive, like anything goes, you know, it's not the porn that's the problem, it's just the context it's delivered in. But in all this time, the last, particularly the last 10 years or so, 10, 15 years, you know, we've been working towards better education on consent, better education on sex, better understandings of gendered power. And in the meantime, this next generation of guys and girls has been raised on increasingly violent and aggressive porn where the crux of the whole of of pretty much every scene where there's aggression is that it looks like the woman's either enjoying it despite the fact it looks painful Mm. or doesn't look like they're enjoying it at first and in fact is under extreme duress only to be grateful for it later I'm not even going to go into the sort of stuff that you can see in some of the stuff that you just find on a homepage. Yeah. But the episode two, when I literally just went onto Pornhub, most you know popular porn site in the world, and just clicked on the homepage, did not go searching for any particular terms. Yeah. And a lot of it was kind of, well, what you might think of as benign, but is actually incest adjacent, like a lot yeah. of step. I mean, it's like, what the hell? But one clip that I clicked on, it was just like, that looks like a rape. Yeah. You know, I, I am just trying to model what any, like, young teenager could do just going onto the homepage and clicking. Yeah. And it's like, how did we get to be okay with that? How did we get to be okay with kids as young as, like, eight and even younger accessing X-rated content yeah. that is not just 
heavily you know sexualized but violent in almost half of you know of clips online Mm. I just our feminists let that happen to be honest and I think this whole thing with privacy and age verification like go to a sexual violence center and ask them about sorts of injuries that they're seeing in 15 year old girls Mm. like compared to 20 years ago it has changed our culture and no amount of educational context is going to change the fact that when boys and some girls watch porn and they masturbate to it and they set their arousal pathways to what they're watching, they're going to want to replicate that in real life. Yeah, It's different to watching an action movie and saying that's not how people drive in real life. This is yeah. actually like it's a pathway is being trodden in their brain. This is how you get to arousal. If that is not present, you can't get aroused. And that's what mm. so many finding rectal dysfunction, all sorts of issues in their late teens that just weren't an issue like 20 years ago. Yeah. What's the counter to that? Are we, I'm thinking as a parent, when that time comes, is it going to be a conversation around, well, actually what you need to look up, if you want to watch people having sex and learn how to have healthy, intimate relationships with people, this is the kind of thing you should be looking up. And then, you know, finding more what they call female-friendly porn fucked is that that that's like the category female friendly because the rest yeah, yeah. is catered to yeah exactly. i think um you know it's difficult because oh, i think back to i know we're sort of now so used to the idea that kids are going to need to watch it in order to know how to do it like i hadn't watched on before i had sex like i mean no. really i would much prefer someone just to explain it to me yeah. now is it easy to think that if we don't give them an alternative then they are going to just go and watch the other stuff maybe but a, they're never going to want to watch it with their parents. No, clearly. So, um, <laughs> and B, we have to really ask whether we're okay with kids under the age of sixteen watching X-rated content. Yeah, I, I just don't think that. I don't know. I'm, I'm quite happy to move that dial back. Yeah, you know, like classification matters for a reason. Yeah, um, and yeah, sure. I mean, if they watch something where there was actually like negotiations of consent and there was, you know, foreplay and all the rest of it, but I, a lot of the time, if kids have already been watching porn, particularly, that mm. stuff's boring. It's like watching, you know, a European slow European movie compared to a Scorsese film. Yeah, like, like yeah. so arty, so slow. Um, you know. <laughs> Like, uh, it's actually just wow I can see that this is really good filmmaking but I really yeah. want something that's like a bit smash bang yeah but yeah it's just like that porn is porn yeah. because format works porn appeals to some people but like to be honest it it's not the blockbuster oh, actually yeah I think most of my education probably came from watching SBS foreign films on a Friday night you know <laughs> that's what I that's what I say like when we were teenagers, our sex education came from sitting up late watching SBS. Correct. <laughs> Correct. It's true. It was. Yeah. Like, I mean, sometimes, like sometimes you were seeing penetration, but that was like, whoa. Yeah. At the time it was like, okay, there's a sex scene. It's pretty. It's made in an artful way. Yeah. Like porn is really all about moment of penetration of whatever orifice and it's like it's pretty two dollar shop like yeah but yeah i think that i mean the e-safety commissioner has actually just submitted a a paper to the government on age verification and how it can be done you know they don't just let 14 year olds go on to sports bet and like spend ten thousand dollars a year so and the question is can you do this in such a way that does not breach people's privacy Mm. in ways that our privacy is already breached um, do online. 
So yeah. that's that's the major sort of sticking point for age verification. How do you verify age? Like a fingerprint, is there so like a third-party verifier, like a bank? You know, there's, mm. it's tricky. But I think the safety commissioner has come upon some models that might work. And overseas, it's being trialled. Amazing. Okay, well, there's hope for my kids then. Hopefully, if they can I sort that so. out in the next few years. Yeah. <laughs> By the time seven-year-old is in his teens, hopefully yeah. he's not exposed before then. Yeah, keep him away from everyone else's older siblings until then. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, the other thing that was really powerful, obviously, I mean, so much of this was, but, you know, you spoke with some of the most incredible women, Grace Tame, Saxon Mullins, their, the power in their stories and the way they tell them was so moving. Like we just had to keep pausing. You know, I've seen Grace speak. She came and spoke uh, at my workplace and, you know, she was incredible. And we know she's incredible, but I hadn't heard Saxon share so much of her thoughts and her experiences in long form like this. And she was just incredible, incredible. Yeah, really moving. And I think that's why you always want to be presenting new stories where you can and, you know, giving a platform to advocates who haven't had a platform before, but also something to be said for advocates who have been in this space for many years now and who've been central to everything from law reform efforts to efforts to reform culture and educate. They they know how to present this mm. to get to people because they've been practising yeah. for a long time and, and they know how to contextualise it and I think what the way that Saxon talks about consent, it's like it's as simple as asking a question, you know, yeah. and their magnetism mm. is really incredible. I think Australia is quite unique in the presence of these incredibly charismatic survivor advocates who are coming into an already very well-established feminist sector, people at the coalface who've been doing this for a long time. It's just the power of this movement here is unlike other countries. And I know I, I rewrote my book, See What You Made Me Do, for um, UK and American audiences. Mm-hmm. So I really look what their scenes were like over there. And they also have incredible advocates, but maybe it's something about Australia being small in population mm-hmm. where few voices can make a very big impact and be very well known. And just the fact of having someone like Grace as Australian of the Year yeah. and what she did with that platform, quite quite similar to what Rosie Batty did with that platform, yeah. was just like go hell for leather mm-hmm. and you not waste a single opportunity to the point where it was, you know, pretty detrimental to their health. But, you know, that like they made Australia sit up and take notice and that platform is sort of unlike anything else that we have or anything that you see in other countries. Yeah, I think we're in a pretty amazing position and we need to be because Australia has some pretty shocking statistics on an international level in terms of our attitudes, in terms of the rate violence, particularly rates of bullying and sexual harassment, like punching above our weight, to be honest. Mm So we need to have some very straightforward conversations about this and a lot of them. Yeah. So I guess, you know, taking all of that in, what is your feeling about where 
we're going with this for the future generations? Do you think this is going to be a conversation that's being had or do you think this is going to really become part of just the natural way of relating to each other, this enthusiastic consent? Is this next generation really going to take this in, do you think, and run with it? I think they already are. We see in surveys around Generation Z or, you know, whatever we want to call them, the one after Gen Y, which is me, that there was some alarm about them having less sex and that teenagers were having a lot less sex than previous generations. And a couple of outlets, including BuzzFeed, did a pretty like broad survey of young people and asked them, you know, why are you having sex or not having sex and how? what are the choices you're making? And a bunch of them were like saying, I'm not just wanting to have sex with anyone or have sex for the sake of it. You know, I want to have the sex that I want to have and actually I would prefer to have no sex than unwanted sex or bad sex. And they're actually, this whole idea of sexual liberation, which came to stand in for, you should be up for anything at any time. And if you're not up for a bit of choking and gagging, well, you're a prude. I think this next generation seem to be showing that, like, why would I want to do that? Like, why do, because a lot of the, the kind of ethos of raising kids has become your body is your body. You know, you're allowed to decide what happens to your body unless I need to wash it, you know, like yeah. um, and, <laughs> yeah. and hug Uncle Joe if you don't feel like it, you know. Yeah. Um, that, at the leading edge of culture, that's been really, that's been the change away from just hug your Uncle Joe. He feels yeah. uncomfortable, like <laughs> you so bad. That's been a major change. And as we know, like consent classes now, I mean, like we're, we're talking about consent education that really starts at age three, like when they've got some kind of language or sense of themselves in space and others in space and about like, what do we do when we want to hug? Like, do we just race up like and hug someone or we race up and lick someone? Maybe we check in first, you know? Um, And not to interrupt their naturalness, but to stop it from happening so that they feel entitled to do whatever they want to someone else, no matter how that person responds, which is like not great for them growing up. Like, let's face mm. it, people who breach other people's consent, it's not good for them. Yeah. Like doing our kids a service by just saying, like, if you just, like, check in with people, you can have all of that natural feeling and, and love and expression but without making them feel uncomfortable. And similarly, you can say no even if someone else is showing that makes them feel uncomfortable because it's not on you to just submit so that people don't feel awkward. That's not on you. So, yeah, I think that it's, I mean, who knows? Because in concert with this sort of like consent and respect conversation and and culture change is all the stuff we've talked about in the manosphere and the and the reaction to that and any big change in power or any big cultural change almost always comes with backlash two steps forward one step back um, or even three steps back you know and it's a constant back and forth I think the the thing to come to terms with is that it's not ever going to be finished power abuse entitlement, all of these are are forces that are going to be contested forever. We'll have women's marches in 100 years where my daughter or her granddaughters will say, I can't believe I'm still protesting this shit, just like there were 70-year-olds at the women's march in 2021 saying, I can't believe I'm still protesting this shit. And the the message is that, like, keep protesting this shit forever because it's never going to stop. And let's just friends with that because that's when the government says something like laudable kind of aim in a way but to say we're going to end women's you know gen- violence against women in a single generation i want to scream because it's like no we need to plan for the generations to come 
We don't, we're not advancing a single generation and certainly not the way that we're going. Mm. We need to make friends with the fact that this is going to go for generation after generation after generation. It's about how we respond to it and the prevalence of it. We'd like to make it a minority experience, yeah. not a majority experience. Mm. So, yeah, that's, I mean, it's... Mm. Not an uplifting note to. <laughs> I I do think it's get in the trenches and there's a lot to this fight that is incredible. We can really learn so much about ourselves and about intimacy and about how to be in the best relationship we can be with ourselves and with others. So that is a note of hope that as parents, which a lot of listeners are, there's. It feels like a weighted responsibility, but I think there's also a lot of power in that. And there are some brilliant conversations. Like I actually really look forward to having some of these conversations with my kids as they get older. And already, I mean, I feel like I shove a lot of this down their throat naturally because of, you know, my work, my eldest, when he was talking about, you know, when he was in prep, all about getting married and I'm going to marry this one. And I said, well, you don't just decide that you're going to marry someone. They have to want to marry you too. And it's a conversation you have together. So then a little bit down the line, he said, I'm really going to marry this person. And it's okay because we talked about it and she wants to marry me too. I was like, oh, that's great. Fabulous. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's the thing is that a parent of young kids, the advantage you have is that you can actually have these conversations so that it's just normal to my daughter about periods and stuff. It's not like I'm going to have to have the talk when she's going to get her period. It's like she's going to know about like way too much about periods by then. (laughs) Include her in the experience of that for me and just as an opportunity just to, to bring it up you know, when I'm menstruating and just sort of explain, yes, again, that like this is something that will happen to you at a certain age. Like it just means that it's not awkward because they're like, yeah, mum's always talked to me about that stuff. Instead of like, mum, like why are you talking to me about that? It's like, oh. With mum about periods. And they've got cute little things they come home with, which must be from these consent conversations at the very beginning of school. You know, one of them says, From my head to my toes, I say what goes. Like, and then my my five year old, I'm saying, Come on, let's get your pajamas on or off or whatever it is in that battle. And he says, No means no, it's my body. I decide. I'm like, Oh, Fuck, where's the right line? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's a good caveat that Body Safety Australia, there's a lot of consent education puts on young kids learning about consent is that like, yes, your body is your body and yes, you decide what happens to it unless it needs to be washed or dressed by, by your parent or someone who is your guardian. <laughs> you know, it's like, sorry, you don't say always like, oh, no, yeah. I'm not going to wash for a week. No, yeah. that's not it. Yeah, exactly. Anything else, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sing it from the rooftops. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to have hugs or kisses, but you do need to yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now what's coming up next for you? Because I mean, you know, this is a huge amount of work that you've been doing. I hope there's a bit of downtime, but I'm sure you've got other projects or ideas bubbling along. Can you tell us yeah. anything about it? Yeah. So I'm doing, I continue to do a lot of education work, which is sort of primarily my bag now. So a lot of like speaking in various places. I'm also working very slowly away on a book that's looking at like, well, how do we, like some people will say that we need to smash the the patriarchy but how would we undo the patriarchy like kind of untangle it and how are we already doing that and and what would it look like to perhaps accelerate that and what are the barriers to us doing that so yeah I'm sort of looking forward and the workout more to culture and power more broadly amazing I cannot wait 
I mean, no rush. No, I'd probably, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. And if people want to follow along and see what you're up to, where's the best place for them to catch you? Yeah, well, I left Twitter because it just became gross. And so I'm on Instagram, Jessica Helen Hill. I'm on Facebook, still not too gross. (laughs) Just done. (laughs) And also on LinkedIn, I kind of pop up a bit here and there. Amazing. Well, I'll add those to the show notes so people can find that easily. But Jess, Thank you so much for this chat, for your time, for your work. I'm a huge fan and I will be watching with keen interest to see what comes next. Awesome, Yana. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We would love it if you left us a rating for this episode. And catch up with Yana for more inspiration and info on how to get to the stories that tap into your passion on Instagram and Facebook at The Curious Life Podcast. And if you're looking for a fabulous podcast editor or producer, use ours. Julie Reynolds will turn your audio lemons into audio lemonade. Check out audiolemonade.com.au.